My name is Kim Rothwell, and this is The Return to Embodiment. In this conversation, I'm speaking with Amber Elizabeth Gray. Amber loves to move on the universal continuum of centered stillness to wild liberation. She practices and teaches dance movement therapy, continuum, yoga, and other integrative movement arts and therapies. Her work focuses on restoration, meaning-making, and belonging for those who survive human rights abuses. Equally, clinician, mystic, provocateur, and artist. She brings her right to embody somatic human rights framework and body of change ecosomatic regenerative retreats to communities of therapists, artists, and global citizens, change makers worldwide. This was such a delightful conversation. I'm so excited to share it with you. I'm Kim Rothwell, and this is The Return to Embodiment. In these conversations, what I like to start by is tracing sort of where we first met. It's probably different for you because I've been aware of you for a really long time and um, appreciative of your work. And in particular, I was thinking about this this morning, there's a quality of and accessibility to how you communicate the work mm. um, that you do that I'm so grateful for. Um, just keeping it, uh, yeah, keeping it like close to the earth, close to the body, close to the heart. The first time I sort of learned about you, um, I was going to a conference, an ADTA conference, and I was so excited because it was a continuum presentation and you were going to be presenting. And then you didn't. <laughs> oh, I got stuck in Australia in the yes. middle of the outback. <laughs> That's right. 2013. I will never forget it. Yeah. Yep. Well, that oh. sounds like a story in and of itself. <laughs> I, yeah. Tennant Creek. I went to from Alice Springs to Tennant Creek, which is in the, yeah, the Northern Territories. And it's, yeah, it was wild. We drove and I mean, you really have to drive. And it was, I don't remember what happened. That was a long time ago, but I remember, you know, like, oh, and Rebecca and, you know, Rebecca is my dear friend and colleague. And so, but she was like, what, you're not, not going to be there. And, and I was supposed to do a ADTA talk at that conference as well. And yeah, but I got stuck in the outback, which is <laughs> talk about earth. I mean, that's a place where I just, I just want to lay my bones down and dance right there in the earth. I love that place. So probably why I got stuck. <laughs> it was a car thing. I remember we went by this giant pineapple, one of those kitschy, you know, things that giant, the biggest pineapple in the world or something. I don't remember. <laughs> <laughs> Trying to find a way to get on the map. Yeah. Um, yeah. And the continuum work was amazing, by the way. Rebecca did a beautiful job. And yeah. um, when you talk about lying 
on the earth on the ground like that's sort of how the continuum i haven't done it actually since then although i'd love to um but in that in that training it felt like um almost like a realigning of our vibration to be in relationship with the earth in a in a healthier way yeah yeah i'm glad you had rebecca she's to me she's one of my favorite teachers yeah but yeah, I mean, can, one of the things Emily, you know, who birthed Continuum talked about is um, how our connective tissue, our fascia, fascia is connective tissue, is the same frequency as the earth. And it's, you know, I somewhere between 5.8, 6.8 hertz. But that's why, you know, camping, you know, those of us who love to do love to sleep on the earth is you know, I love to do, I still, I can go to a park in the middle of a city and if I lay down, I'm out. <laughs> I love sleeping on the ground. So, um, and that's where all the earthing, you know, sheets and stuff come from, but then it's, we were this, they were, they were the same frequency. Um, and it's a slow wave, you know, it's a really slow wave. And of course our world is so sped up that it's hard to find that way. I think that's why so much connective tissue, like so much tension and pain and, you know, there's more and more awareness. It might not be your muscles, but your connective tissue. That's why it's, it's thirsty and it's, you know, gathering in like cringing, almost like, when can I? Yeah. When can I connect? When can I spread out? Yeah. Yeah. The, um, the other thing that struck me with the continuum work is the sounding Mm -hmm. and just how uh weird that is but so <laughs> wonderful you know it just I'm a I'm a sounder like and even in authentic movement practice like sound just arises within me and yeah. sometimes I go through this whole thing in my head of like I don't know do you have to because it's gonna be intrusive in some way you know and um so it was really nice to just have this whole room of sound yeah. arising uh from the earth yeah um from the movement yeah emily and those of us who've who are teachers and some of us now with emily gone you know we we have contributed sounds to the the anthem of of continuum sounding that that is so a lot of practices work with sounding and she and we are so intentional with, I like to say, with, ex, you know, exploring and experimenting in the laboratory of our bodies. What is this sound doing? Um, yeah, it's it's pretty potent. That's, you know, that's what I do out in the South Pacific when we get in with the humpbacks. It's continuum for half a day with other things. I mean, I weave in a little yoga or some dance, but and then we get in the ocean, you know, because I, it, to me, it's the ocean is our home our source, our origin, um, our planet, our blessed mother earth needs ocean so bad. Um, I mean, so, so good. Like, you know, we know this. And so I incur, I use, or we explore continuum as an invitation to really wet the body and remind us of our moist nature. And then when we get in, we're home. The feedback I got this year from participants was, was, you know, it's not just swimming in the ocean, like actually being able to settle and getting in and rest, um, which is so important for engaging with our more than human relations, right? I mean, they don't want us to be in there frantically thinking about, hey, 
you know, it's just like, oh, can you just be here? So, and we find the earth beneath the ocean, whether it's visible or way down deep and we don't see it, you know, we connect to that, but yeah, it's powerful. I and thought of you when I was I'm so there. glad that you, you're bringing up yeah. the whales already. <laughs> <laughs> and the ocean mother um this is a retreat that you lead yeah it's a retreat that i facilitate it started um well i went in 2015 and was on somebody else's trip there um but very very much called i mean i've been called i can't, I can't remember the year but i um I spoke about this in the Marion Chase lecture, this dream that I had that I realized that was about whales. And I realized in the moment of waking up from that dream 30, 40 years ago, that it was about my dad's death and how dreams, you know, tell us things. And it's like, what? <laughs> like now that I'm awake, what? Um, so I've been fascinated by them. I mean, I love all animals. I'm a bit of a critter nut. You know, I just love all critters and creatures and, um, but they've always called me. So I, and then I started having more, I had another dream. I was teaching a continuum retreat in France actually. And um, in a drought where there's hardly any water. And I remember having this potent whale dream and there was a trip on in like a month. And um, it was actually really beautiful. I, yeah, I, I, um, in between that and the trip to Tonga and I wanted to go, but it's quite, it's quite a privilege to be able to go. It's not, you know, it's a long ways. There's a plane flight. Um, it's not crazy. You know, it's, it's not crazy expensive, but it's not cheap. And um, my dad had just started his descent. It was the beginning of the end that took about six years descending into Parkinson's and dementia and everything. And he was in and, uh, um, skilled care for the first time. It was really hard. And, you know, my mom was really distraught and he'd go in and out of these places. And um, I was sitting with him and I was, you know, the nurses said, just try to engage him. So I showed him footage from this. He's now my good friend, Erez is, uh, it's, it's a, it's a free diving. Um, it's more of a free diving retreat. Um, and I was like, I really want to do this. You know, you're seeing the whales and the whales coming up, you know, close to the camera and some people with them. And my dad just kept shaking his head. And then he goes, do you really want to do this, sweetheart? You really want to do this? I said, yeah, dad, someday I'm gonna. And he said, well, I thought you wanted to go now. I said, I can't, um, I said, I can't afford it. And he said, I'll buy your plane ticket if you make me one promise. And I said, what? Yeah, what? You know, I didn't know what he's going to say. And he said, you listen to those whales. You listen and you listen and you never stop listening because you've been waiting for them for a long time. That's what he said. And that was the beginning. And he bought the plane ticket. And my mother just said, you know, there's this thing. She did research and found out about GoPros. And she bought me my first GoPro. She said, we'll never be able to see what you're seeing. So please record it for us. And... And every now and then my mom, she'd say, you know, cause I'd go, then I started leading the retreats or facilitating the retreats. And my mom would just be like, your dad would just sit there and go, is our daughter really in the ocean with those big animals? Like, do you have any pictures? Can I see it? Is she really doing that? And what a journey. I mean, and that first dream that heralded his passage, but he got it. And he, that was from his heart. He knew exactly what he was saying. Um, a moment of lucidity where he was able to transmit a blessing. Yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah. And my dad was, he's the indigenous ancestry in the family. He's, you know, European and indigenous and, and, you know, knew his whole childhood about his native American ancestry, but was, was forbidden to talk about it. His father was forbidden. You know, my German grandmother was apparently fierce, you know, just pounded the table and no, no, no. So my dad and I connect, connected deeply at that place. And I attribute that ancestry and i'm not saying that you know being also of european descent that there's not an ability to connect in a particular way to nature but um what i've learned as i've explored and and pushed to find out more about it and met some of the you know they're now ancestors they were relatives they're now gone 10 or 20 years but i interviewed them and got as much information as i could but i was a girl scout and i do remember my parents when i was in like sixth or seventh grade sent me for like a seven day hike with a I don't know who it was with with a bunch of in the in the white mountains of New Hampshire like up and down these big mountains but I was raised in the suburbs so where this love of the wild comes from and I recognize it and I feel it in my dad you know like that was really the place is deep um and that was one of the last things I remember here the last time I ever took him out in his wheelchair ever um, in this parking lot in this skilled care facility, you know, I just, we'd sit at the edge of the woods. He just loved to look at the woods. And he looked at me, he said, you and I have more in common than you realize. And I was like, what are you talking about, dad? He said, we'd rather be in there than out here. You know, it was another one of those. So the connection to the, to the wild and to the wild beings, the more than human. I mean, I attribute my, my longing for that um, definitely to him so beautiful yeah 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 and you know he commuted every day my whole child you know he commuted to new york he was a corporate businessman and he did that so that he could provide for a family because he was raised with he was actually grew up very 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 impoverished in many ways and just you know by you know there wasn't food for days at a time you know things like that he didn't have the material comforts i mean it was an uncomfortable lack of things that keep you warm and fed and clothed and all of that. And so in his deep desire for us not to know that, um, you know, dang, what a sacrifice to get on a train from a suburb and go to New York City when you'd rather be in the woods. Um, mm, yeah. Yeah, it's a big gift. Mm. And actually, I, I just, I'll share this because I felt him this year, I had an experience an extraordinary experience it's often the moms and the babies that swim with us mm. um humpbacks always have and they always have escorts with them and escorts are the big ones usually male not always they're huge and they're you often see them on the bottom not always and i've been once i was in the water when one came up and sort of charged a group because they were not their job is to take care of the mom and baby you know if sharks come around they take care of you know they protect them so they'll protect them if humans don't read the cues. The moms give cues when it's like, okay, we're done interacting with you. I want my baby to go with me. We need to rest. So they very, very rarely interact, the big, the, the escorts. I was in the water this year. It was the second to last day. And it was the day after I had taken parting stones for my mom and dad, their ashes. I converted them to what's called parting stones. It's a process that actually creates stones out of the cremains. And um, I had just put them near the first time ever there was a whale nursery this year off where we were, where the mothers and babies were singing a lot. You could hear it on shore. So um, 
the next day I was out not too far from there and I was in the water and I was watching this mom and baby, they were doing this beautiful spirals and they just kept coming up, both of them and getting near and then leaving. And then they, all of our group had swam with them and then they were going off and I, I had my GoPro, I was using it for a little bit and I was watching them go off and my whale guide was following them. And um, all of a sudden I felt something on my left. I can't even put it into words. It was a presence so big and I turned and there was a 40 ton escort four feet from me, eye to eye. My group saw the whale come up and they saw a tiny little me disappear and they're like, oh, where's Amber, you know? And the my whale, the whale guy, Tani was over there watching like, and he said his first thought was, thank goodness it's Amber because she's going to know what to do. I, the thing that, that ha- the words was awe is a prayer. The transmission I got from the that whale, it was so incredible. I had no fear. It was just suspended awe. I was just there, so aware of my dinkiness with this incredible being who just floated by, could have smacked me, dropped his fin as he went right by me. Like he knew I was there. And and I got on the boat and and I was. I was weeping because it was so powerful. Five years ago, I would have been scared. Like I just had no fear. There were two things that happened. One is it wasn't that the whale was my dad. I felt the strength that I think I both inherited from my dad, but that also he saw in me. I'm seeing you, you see me. And it wasn't just respect me, respect the mommy and baby that I'm with, but it was like, and it's it's the whole, these retreats are becoming my invitation for us to learn how to respect this is home. Like I felt like he was actually, it was respect. He could have clobbered me and he didn't. And it was such a powerful witness. It was incredible. I've never had anything like that. So the practice that's most formative to me is the authentic movement. I've worked with Zoe Abstride. I know you referenced her in your, in your writings. Yeah. yeah. She's a teacher. Yeah. Yes. Love Love her. The experience of being witnessed and to have an experience of another being hold your, your essence, your presence Mm -hmm. while you're very much aware of theirs. Yeah something so sacred and underlying that is like this very intense respect and also like a recognition of our interbeing. yes which is which is part of what's missing yeah. so much in our world right the the fact that when i forget that harm is easier to happen yeah i love what you just said kim and it what we're, what concerns me is it seems to me that it's getting easier to forget. Um, not for me, but for others. I, I, I sense this um, intelligence that's waking up that, or, you know, that's been dormant that, that there, because I do, I hear and I read and people talking about, you know, we need to restore our relationship to the natural world and start to listen again and learn and, and indigenous wisdom, you know, like in, in Australia, after the terrible um, bushfires of 2019, 2020, you know, many f- local fire departments bringing in 
First Nations or Aboriginal, you know, wisdom, like one of the only towns that survived their unscathed that was in the area was a fierce Aboriginal female fire department, you know, <laughs> like they knew what to do. So um, we know this and this seduction and entrapment in speed and materialism and deviceism <laughs> to call it. And um, everything is so fast now that that's, that's what concerns me. And I know one of the questions you asked me to, you know, consider is what is embodiment? And it's not that it's, it's actually that, that moment of witnessing. And it's the question. It's like the question itself. How am I in this flesh and blood and love part of everything, you know, in their flesh and love and blood. I mean, how are we connected? Um, that, that incredible whale was only, you know, four feet away. I mean, it was that close. I, and he or she's always there, right? There was that moment of being connected close, just a little swatch of, you know, water between us, but the connection's always there. How do we not forget that? Keep breathing that space. Yeah. It feels like in order to like reprogram, there's experiences that can help with that, right? There's practices of embodiment. There's practices of nature connection. There's practices of spirit. Mm-hmm that can loosen the entrapment. I really want to link your, uh, your speech for the, for the American Dance Therapy Association Conference from last year, just because it has so much context of how you're really drawing together realms of trauma and torture and that work that you've been doing for decades, um, holding healing and hope in relationship with people who have suffered so greatly. And to me, there's like an intimacy to the work that you're doing with the whales. Like somehow those two things are coming together in you. Mm. <laughs> I hope so. Um, I think so. And it's interesting because I feel like I've sensed, you know, sensing is so important to me, like sense, like in my body, that happening. Um, I don't know. I don't know if I know how it's happening. Although I write a lot. And I think part of that is part of how I process the work, but, you know, I love to write. And I remember times where I was really engaged with, you know, theories and, uh, you know, putting things together. And there's, there's been this stripping away and all of that is important. And I still have that lively conversation, lively dialogue. Um, but there's something about the simplicity and, and the word you used intimacy. There's times where I've heard this, but but what's happening now is the way that I sense it and feel it, but even deeper than feeling sense, the um, 
the realness of just sitting with someone. And I think this is the power of authentic movement, right? I haven't done that practice in a while. Um, I don't have a place here to do it in, in New Mexico right now, but just a little segue, you know, this whole thing towards evidence-based practice and all the, you know, the manualized and people have been asking me for years, why don't you create a manual? No, there is no manual for this, right? That bold map, the human heart, that's the map. And I hope that the transmissions from the whales and others, my spiritual teachers who might be human or more than human, um, I hope that's what's guiding me. The more that it is, that I sense that it is, it really is this um, deep listening, deep listening, which is a you know very common term, First Nations term, but just being with and less is more just sitting with not filling the space with what's the next thing to say how do i reflect what they just said i mean all of that is good stuff you know how we be a therapist i've had a few clients who have reflected that back to me sometimes in the moment sometimes years later like the one the story that i shared about the one man that the power of just being with somebody because a lot of people turn away, right? Nobody wants to look at torture. Nobody wants to look at what's real in a in a human being who's presenting as broken or feels broken. I, I go between, are we ever truly bro broken? Um, I know we can feel broken, but no, people don't want to look. I mean, my husband in its cheeky way will say, you can clear out a room in a cocktail party, you know? What do you do? Nobody wants to listen, right? Just to be seen and held. And um, I think I think some of the most powerful medicine teachers or mystics, probably that's what they do. I, I mean, the ones that I've had the blessing to be with, that's that's the potency that in the medicine. You know, and it's not one fixing another, it's I see you to be seen and to see it's like being the observed and the observer mm -hmm. and we're both doing it that reciprocity i don't know if that made sense but it totally makes sense and it's really beautiful and um i can also clear a room at a cocktail party pretty quick <laughs> right <laughs> you've used the word transmission which i really love because it does have that, um, it has that spiritual teacher mm. mentorship <laughs> of like, I am being initiated into something. Um, and the way that you spoke to it, I know that you have many mentors and I'd love for you to acknowledge them. You've already talked about your dad and the whales, but whoever you'd like to speak to. Um, but the student, the learner, when there's an openness to that transmission, can receive that presence, that intimacy, that can form how they're capable of witnessing and holding, right? Like that's true nurturing mm -hmm. of what you're describing. And I think that's part of what I've received in my relationship with um, with my teachers. The teachers that have held 
me in a way that has changed how I understand my own transmission. It's interesting because the word just before you said nurturing, the word that I was that was bubbling up in me was nourishing, nourishment, and maybe it's a nourishing. You know, when the nourishing that allows us to open invites us to open because there has to be support. There has to be love. There has to be a, a being held. And then the transmission as a nourishment of our own wisdom. I mean, maybe transmission. Yeah. I mean, I'm reflecting what you just said. It deepens or it um, emboldens and it, um, invites the recognition of our own wisdom. I mean, I think the hardest thing to do, and I, I'll, I'll just name this for me, you know, I recognize wisdom in a lot of other people. If anybody reflects that they think I have wisdom, I'm like, what? I <laughs> <laughs> don't know what it's like to live with me. I do, right? But, right? But there's <laughs> lessons in everything. Um, I mean, I'm actually going to carry this forward. This is actually a question that I'm, I'm also, don't know if it's formed, but it's forming, you know, and and I there's probably no time. There's no there's no full stop. There's no end to it. I hope I keep receiving the transmission from that magnificent being who I was with about, I don't know, six weeks ago. I often hope that I keep receiving the transmissions from Manchun, my spiritual mother, who initiated me in Aiti and Haiti. Um, powerful, powerful mumbo. Um who kept telling me that she'd been, you know, it sounds cliche when I say it, but she'd been waiting for me for years. You know, there was going to be one blanc, blanc <laughs> means white, but it also means foreigner in Creole who was going to come and be her last daughter. And um, I dream her, you know, a lot. I dreamed her more after her death. I haven't, you know, dreamed of her, dreamed her in a while, but that's in that space. But it's lately, and I think this is, a gift of the whales who I've been with since 2015. Um, I think I'm pausing more to allow that transmission in because it's still happening, right? I don't think they stop happening. There's the moment and maybe it's if we're present enough and receptive enough and willing to be reciprocal, which I think is so important. That was one of the transmissions from that well you know respect and reciprocity um because he can't go on without ocean right some marine biologists are giving the humpbacks 30 years because of what's happening to the ocean it more direct for him i don't know i don't know if it was he or she but i feel i felt like it was a him um and then us right and then then it's a, then it's going to be us but um yeah, I don't know. It's, it's, I'm just, it's like in that moment of being witnessed in that way, having worked with Zoe, I still remember exactly what she said to me on several witnessing moments in like 99, 98. I will never forget what she said, how I was seen. Um, it keeps going. It It's then, but it's not just then. It's like, um, my limited, limited knowledge of what's meant by a dream time in Australia. I have a spiritual teacher there now, Alara Kiaman, um, Tony, and 
it's what we're always creating and it's always been created and it will continue to be created. And we're always in it. Like the dream time has no past, present, future. It's a full bodied ongoing relationship with the universe where we're dancing and creating. And that's what life is. And it doesn't end when we die. Right. So there's, those moments of being seen are still there. Mm -hmm. I love that um, so much. I'm reading a book right now um, that is talking about the trees and the communication that mm -hmm. they have underneath yeah. the earth and the nurturing that goes on after a tree has been cut down to still nourish the young um the nursing trees that actually you know the trees form inside the body of the old tree mm -hmm. and yeah. Uh, yeah i know about the root system but yeah so sometimes a, a little sprout will take hold literally on the body of the mother of the of the older tree of the parent tree and it'll mm -hmm. be a stump and then there'll be this young one growing directly from it because this was a good space to grow. Yep. It was a space that had been cleared out by this ancient one. And so the young one can start to inhabit and uh, send roots over the body of the older one into the earth. So beautiful. That's the most exquisite thing I think I've ever heard. I really appreciate the reminder um, of the ongoingness it's not like something the transmission is not something that gets like used up or finished <laughs> it's not like ketchup right <laughs> you know we're always running out of ketchup in my house it's extending and, and the way that you were talking about uh the dream time and just time in and of itself is like we think about it in these human lifespans even mm -hmm. and when we go into the water or into the forest or into the desert we're in contact with eons of time that have seen lots of different humans pass through. Yeah. And and there's a, there's a humility to that. Yeah. Like the the tiny amber <laughs> beside the enormous mammal in the south middle of the south pacific in the middle of the ocean. Big ocean. Tiny, yeah. tiny amber and also a quality of like you belong here too. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yes. Thank you. Yeah. See, I just got another layer of the transmission through you. That's the other beauty of this is it's right. It's we're all part of it. Yeah. Those words. Yeah. Just boom. Right. Yeah. Yeah. We're moving the conversation somehow of what the work is that we've been trained in 
into the broader world in a way that is referencing back to more ancient or more um, indigenous ways of thinking and relating. There's concrete structures that we are a part of that have helped to move us, move the field of dance movement therapy forward. And I feel in what you're talking about, this invitation to let loose some of the entrapments that would keep mm-hmm. us from from healing and interrelating and belonging. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. My husband and I were remembering one of our dear friends who actually lives in um, Lebanon, who always, every now and then would just look at me and he's like, you're too, you're too covert to be an American. I don't know what he means by that. He's like, you're such a covert person. This clandestine way that I like to work. But I think, I know you picked up on it. People picked up on some of the things I was saying in the Marion Chase lecture. That was, because I can be very direct. And I was direct and indirect at the same time. It was definitely like, that's part of what I was naming and inviting and um, even kind of like, I don't know what word to use. Like this is not quite demanding, but let's do this. I mean, we have to do this. All the ways, I mean, I, I invite myself, what are all the ways that I contribute to separation? It's a question that, because I'd like to think that I don't, but I keep asking that. My big question, this is a question, I start a lot, all my classes with this for students is what are the ways that I violence myself? Because that's going to inform, you know, how I contribute to the violence that's happening on the earth. Because, and I always say violence arises from disrespect, right? People say, I don't commit any violence. Well, have you ever been rude to somebody? Then yes, you did. Have you ever like skipped breakfast and gotten really grouchy and, you know, you didn't feel good yourself or whatever? Yeah, then that's small acts of violence. So, yeah. Um, You know, what comes up for me as you say that is the little addictions that are, that are like ways of self-soothing, but end up harming, you know, so often that is how I see a pattern in myself or in people that I am helping or it's like, oh, that was not what it what it was meant to do (laughs) and it ends up with violence that's such a powerful question yeah yeah and it's back to this to 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 witness no judgment no you know it's like we do what we do because things are life is hard you know there's no there are hard there's hard things about being embodied and living on a planet at all times in the history of the species called human, including, you know, our ancestors, there's been hard things that have happened, big changes, weather changes. It's hard. So we, you know, we, we adapt and we flex and sometimes it's gets sticky. Cause I've been part of conversations in terms of dance movement therapy is really involved with the first keynote we had when we brought Dr. Porges, um, you know, like being seen in the, I'm going to use the word, the professional context. I've had that. I mean, I've had that, you know, dang it, this is important work, you know, 
we are as effective and as useful and as important and as powerful as the mainstream psychologies and the more medical model that are evidence-based or that just seem to have the power, do it, not seem, have the power, right? You know, medical psychologists get paid more in reimbursement probably than most dance therapists, you know, if we have the credential that allows us to get reimbursed. Um, so that's true, um, but it's not losing our spirit in that, not losing the dance, not losing um, what makes us, I think, more powerful and and possibly the most powerful. We're both a creative and a somatic arts therapy. You know, it's right here. You breathe, you be, you move. There you are, you know? Truth speaking, uh, yeah, it's so. Yeah, you know, I'm as you say that, I'm also going back to what you said about right, right in connection with like the dream time and the creative flow of life, right? Like that creative process of inhabiting a body. I'm also having this this question that is because you and I both went had surgery this year yeah big around, time yeah like around the same time and yeah um how was swimming in the ocean for you after that experience of having you know a necessary but very in, intense surgery well you know, I, I had the surgery because my left leg, I was stood up and my left leg collapsed and I couldn't walk. I don't know if you know the whole story. So it was bad. It was lumbar surgery, spine surgery. And um, I've always had little back issues and I, you know, it was getting, always managed it really well with movement. But anyways, I had a feeling that I had a bulging disc that was hitting an area of stenosis and insurance companies wouldn't pay for an MRI. It was a fight to get care. So I got to the point where I did a funny little movement, just a little movement and um, boom, you know, that the, the femoral nerve just stopped. Like I still, I still can't feel parts of my lower leg because of, you know, what happened to the nerves anyway, end up in the ER for surgery. And before the surgery, the, the, the neurosurgeon, he's like, you know, it's possible that you'll just walk fine again, right out of here. I'm not entirely sure, but you know, they thought they were just going to do some laminectomies. They opened me up and they didn't even do a laminectomy. I had so much, I call it my ocean debris. I had so much crap in there. I had, it wasn't just the bulging disc. I had cysts formed on it. I had fluid in facet joints. I had calcified ligaments. And he said to me, have you had car accidents, a car accident? And of course I've had 13, none of which I've caused. I've had 13 whiplashes that have sheared. So that's what happened. It just created this friction. So all that to say, I learned in May, which was two months after the surgery that he, cause he came to see me the next morning and the, the MA, the medical assistant, she's like, he never comes to see, he rarely sees his patients afterwards. He, he needed me to move my foot and my knee. He wasn't sure I was going to move again, my leg because of all the intricate work he had to do through my nerves. So by the time I went to Tonga, I was walking with a cane, you know, walking again. It's been a, that's a whole conversation, learning to walk again. Um, 
And I was pretty nervous, but I, and I didn't want to reschedule my retreat because everybody had been waiting since before the pandemic. So I was like, I'll do this. I went two weeks early. I'm going to get in the ocean and just swim a little bit. It'll be really good for me. I'm going to walk the sand. I, I don't have to get in the water with my group. <clears throat> the first time I got in the ocean was a little bit intense, like the waves were toppling me and I had to reorient. But within 24 hours, I was swimming a mile or two along the beach every day. The buoyancy, the salt, the ocean salt buoyancy is love. I'm like, if you haven't felt love, get in the ocean and float. Amniotic fluid. Yeah. Yep. And the first day we were going in, I hadn't tried to get on or off the boat. And the whale guy, these guides have known me, Tani, he's just like, you're going to be fine. I know you're going to be fine. So he stopped the boat in the middle of the ocean. He's like, you're your leader. You're in, you know, with me. And I got in the water. And I swam. And on the second swim, I he had to go back to the boat. He goes, you lead the group. And I did it. I stayed up with the way. I did what I've always done. I was in huge chop. We had a current that was ripping us off the boat. No problem. You know, some pain, some nerve pain would come up. One time my whole leg cramped. One time it just stopped kicking for about five minutes. And a friend just said, she's like, oh, I got you. You know, I'll just pull you along. The ocean, it was, it was amazing. I had no pain most of that time back on earth. I have more pain now. So I'm still like, how do we back to continuum, right? Where we started, how am I walking on Santa Fe, New Mexico, dry desert earth, high altitude, not a lot of moisture. How do I keep that ocean flow going? Because in the ocean, Tani, our, he was like, you're so fast and you've always been, he goes, you're the fastest always. He goes, um, he goes, why are you so slow on land now? It's like, you know, like, and I think about the nerves, like what happens to our nerve body when we're in the ocean? Why, why did she liberate in the ocean in a way that's harder on land? That's an interesting question. So that was a long answer. I, I was prepared to be in the boat, not get in. And I got in and it was fine. My group just kept saying like, you're epic out there. Cause I just, I get in the water. I, I love, I, you know, I'm part fish. I think I really do. Like I just in the ocean, I love the bigger, the swells. I love it. I love being out there. And it was really and, interesting and really hopeful for me. Yes. Throughout my, my recovery from my ACL surgery, I've been going into the ocean. I'm not um, swimming nearly two miles. I'm super impressed by you. Well, you have cold ocean near you. It's like, very, very cold. Yeah, and yeah. they say, ice it, elevate, and, you know, put pre put pressure on it. And I was like, well, that's exactly what happens when I go in the ocean. There's the pressure of the water. Yeah. There's the coolness. Yeah. And I'm able to float and elevate it. It's like naturally has all of these recuperative healing yep. elements. Yeah. And in addition to that, that one of the big things that I work through, I don't know if this is part of what you experienced, but just like fear of my own body of um, reestablishing trust. And I wonder about the reestablishing of trust and the reestablishing of nerve connection and the reestablishing of neuromuscular connection. I love my physical therapist and I'm so grateful for her. She's been very helpful and I'm doing my exercises. And in order to work through the fear, I had to do authentic movement 
and swim in the ocean. <clears throat> yep. I, I had to find a way to re-inhabit a connection with in myself that had been severed. Yeah. Pre, the, the thing that I've been playing with is the pre-origins of movement. And I'm so glad you have ocean near you. I know in some of our email exchanges, you always mention swimming. And I'm like, oh, I'm so glad you have that because it is powerful. I ended up joining one of only, we have two like fitness spa centers here in New Mexico, in Santa Fe that have a warm therapy pool. I don't think I ever would have done this <laughs> before this, but um, in preparation for Tonga, but also just, just for my healing, I go there every other day now, but I was going there every day, you know, pushing the walker. <laughs> um, it was so hard to get to that pool. And I get in and I remember saying to my nerves, my body, I did this before. You know, we were in we we're in mama's womb. She's not here now, but we're in this nice warm body of water. No salt, but um, and I would just go really deep to the places like like my knee is still, you know, I have step down on the weak, step up on the strong. Like there's still step, like I can't step up a big step on my weak leg yet. I can't do it. It just won't go, but I'm doing it with smaller steps. So there's still the fear is in my knee. I mean, because that's where I think, I don't know why the nerves just, it's still where there's not a lot of nerve connection and it's really wobbly. And then it was also my hip. And I think that's where actually there was some pressure. So I'd go in the water and I would go to the tiniest place and I was calling it the pre-origin of movement. What happened there that sparked my ability to move the way that I move and I would find it and I would just a little breathing and I would do these tiny baby movements a friend was with me once and she goes I can sense you moving but I can't see it and I was like I'm in there deep yeah just inviting my nervous system to remember not the necessarily how I was patterned before but that I know how to establish these patterns and to connect and what is it, a millimeter every day? They say that the nerves come back. So it's a long journey, but but it was amazing. And I was very much in the world of continuum and body-mind centering, which was a big part of my training. Training, I just, that was all coming back to me. Like, let me go into this moment where I don't know exactly which, you know, a synapse meant whatever met the neuron, whatever it is, however they connect. Like, let's meet again. It's powerful. And I'm still doing that. I said, in fact, tomorrow is my Wednesday night after my clinical day. I always go. And I got one of those weird vests that you put on. It looks like a body diaper that floats you. I just float and do that and sound. And in the ocean too, when I was at the ocean, I would float. I would go and float both face down and face up, you know, just until I usually end up on shore. And then I go back out again and float a little more. And it's lovely there because there's a coral reef that's coming back that was wiped out by a typhoon like some years ago and it's coming back so wonderful to see a coral reef coming back with bright color and there's all these fishies and so I always say my favorite place is to be shaped like a star face down in the ocean and just talking to I like to squeal at the fish <laughs> sing. I sing to them you know I sing little songs and do you hear like the yeah yeah the coral yeah it snap snap crackle pops yeah I love it. I don't know exactly what it is. 
It's amazing. It mm -hmm. talks. Mm -hmm. I wonder if you have nerve chatter as you're, because I'm sure that, yeah, like I, I'm calling it nerve chatter when the nerves start to, either when it's the nerve coming back or the nerve muscle connection remembering. I have Aurora Borealis pain. I have firefly pain. I have fireworks pain. I feel like there's these washes of nerve chatter that happen in this reconnecting that mm -hmm. um, I really hope I can bring into our work as dance women therapists. What we were talking about before when you mentioned, you know, how we can help grow this field. I mean, it's so interesting because it's not the big, you know, the movement. It's really deep, generative holy <laughs> work mm -hmm. yeah and only you can do that it's part of the mystery of it it's like only no one can manipulate your body to get that conversation going the conversation is that holy tuning to your own energetic communication processes. Yeah. A deep self-attunement perhaps. Yeah. And when we start to experience those minutia as holy, and then we're also experiencing the world itself <laughs> and the ways in which we're we're the little nerves that have been disconnected. And that image for me is like, it's root systems within your body. And then it's root systems, like it's yeah. branching out. We, we go both ways deep. Yeah. Broad. Yeah. Yeah. All the attention the nervous system is getting now and polyvagal theory. And it's so important. And I love to be with it in a way that's not you know, nerve reductionistic. It's not the nerves. I always say, depending upon where you are on the planet, North Star, Southern Cross, you know, it's that which guides us that far out. Yeah, I'm convinced that our nervous system, which to me is really a process, <laughs> talks to the stars. I'm convinced we, that's how we communicate with the stars. To me, there's something about being my body in the ocean, you know, at nighttime. I mean, there's not some places in the world where I wouldn't do that, but if I can just go float at nighttime and you can see the stars in the ocean, you know, see the lights. Or sometimes you even in the stars aren't out, the ocean has its own sparkly stars happening and just, yeah, there's the connection. There's the, the hookup. <laughs> it can hook us up, I think. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think, I think of that the the reach mm -hmm. this amazing pathway mm -hmm. and the the moon yeah. guiding the tides yep the the moon moves people my my sister-in-law was a midwife for many years and she was like oh in the full moon people are having babies yeah yeah pulling the yeah. water yeah well, in menstruation, I mean, I remember for many, many years, I always got my period on the new moon, always, you know, and I was doing a lot of work then. I mean, that was probably back when I was 
in another way exploring nature and connection to nature and studied with Susan Weed and some of the herbalists and that's that inner tide you know it's an inner tide it's a life giving life force tide that is so true I think more conversations I have a daughter and more conversations about menstruation um not as worse an inconvenience <laughs> are necessary oh yeah because i hear the people are using you know think birth control or things that now stop their periods and i mean i'm i'm you know postmenopause. i miss them i miss them yeah if i could yeah i mean i agree it's such it's our tide it's our tidal pool <laughs> like it's, and it's an exchange i was taught to um, you know, every time that I had my period to bleed on the earth at least once, you know, and I would do that. I'd go out sometimes in the middle of the night if I was someplace where I couldn't do in the middle of the day and I'd do it, you know, if I, and if I had to bring my blood to the earth because I was in a concrete jungle, I'd do it. I really believe in that. Wow. I've never done that. Yeah. I can't remember who, I think it might've been when I studied, um, you know, up in New York State with Susan Weed, and I studied with a woman named White Feather. Yeah, ever since then, I always did it. Yeah, I, I think there's a connection for me between these cycles, between the cycle of menstruation and um, adopting that different perspective of time. Yeah, and organicity. Um, yeah yeah the cycles i'm excited for when that happens for her i don't think she is at all i think she sees it as a big inconvenience and i'm like hmm. what if we what if we started to reclaim some of the power inherent in that yeah it is a power time. And a lot of the teachings that I've had, from, you know, different medicine teachers, you know, that's why the women often write, go off or like, don't sweat or go off into their own tent is there's a lot of power. And I can't remember when we were talking about stillness at one point you were talking about, I think it was in the very beginning, that deep stillness so that we can sense our own power. What a thing to be able to do to shed every month. Blood is like the life fluid the life force it's it's really powerful yeah i i just it's weird because just the other day i was like i want to have a period again i miss it i just miss it like crazy yeah and i know there's a different power in this time i i i like to joke because i don't <laughs> you know hot flashes are a big topic of menopause and i always say talk about power it's a little bit weird because some of these movies were, well, we're doing it now. We're reading people's eyes at airports and stuff. But I was like, if women, if we could just put our hands on something that would reduce the hot flash, but would gra grab all that energy and could light up like places that don't have electricity. I know there's power in hot flashes, like, cause they're so intense. <laughs> you know, what is that? You know, it does. It felt like it actually could light around. Yeah. It's heat and that's yeah. energy, right? That's yeah. So all of it, you're all right. Cycles, yeah. All these cycles are part, are, are, I was to say part of our power. Maybe they are our power. 
being in touch with them. Mm-hmm. And I know there's people, you know, I'm thinking of, of what you're going to be doing at the conference. You're going to be with Melissa Walker, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, that's, I feel like some of in that work um, touches into this realm. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. Dismantling the shame yeah. around pleasure, sexuality. Our and body allowing bodies. dance therapists to talk about it. Yeah. Freeing dance therapists to do this work too. Yeah. Yeah. I love how this conversation is going, Amber. It's so much fun to talk to you. I know. All these different ways all these different ways of being a body Mm. a human yeah a song i like to think of us as songs i was some this morning i think i wrote a haiku about humans as songs i don't know where i wrote it but it's somewhere on a scrap of paper (laughs) have you always been a writer yeah actually when i graduated from high school everybody thought i was going to be a writer and it's interesting that i went into politics briefly think tank stuff and then public health and then psychotherapy um I actually just found a note from my dad like reminding me to write a book so yeah I'd love to be a writer just sitting and writing I love writing um and people are like why haven't you written a book and I'm like I write chapters I write little bits you know I haven't but I'm working on a book now but I um I'd like to get back into I want to write this one book and then I want to get back into more creative writing because that's really where I started. I write haiku all the time, all the time. I've got piles of it. You know, this little book has haikus in it. And uh, my computer has haiku. I'm always writing them down on my com- iPhone. <laughs> but yes, I love to write. I write a lot, sort of like a flow that comes. I don't know how your your writing comes with like, there'll be something and I'm like, oh, I want to get that down. I like that image, poetic or braided essay sort of style. I, you probably can tell from how I interview, like I have a tendency to, to do that kind of like pulling of things to try to form. It's like kind of a love hate, like it's for me, it's fine. And I hold it for myself, but then sharing it or like, that feels a lot harder for me. Growing edge. I would love to see more, you know, more people in our field writing. I mean, I think dance movement therapy deserves to get out there more because I teach a lot of alternate root classes. I, you know, I really encourage students to write and to think about how they might contribute in writing because that is the way that we document, and it is, you know, and again, it's part of that more mainstream and academic and all of that, but it, mm-hmm. it's helpful. Mm-hmm. I find writing on a computer hard. Like it, I, I never learned to type. <laughs> and I, when I was in high school, we hand wrote our papers. So yeah. I tend to prefer to write by hand, but now it's hard because my hands are all tight from computers because I poke the keys. So, oh, you know, I can dictate or, you know, use the dictation thing, but I, yeah, I, as much as I love to write, I find it hard to do unless I really have dedicated time for it. If I'm competing with other stuff. I think I don't get quiet enough. I think it requires a lot of quiet. Yeah. Like if I'm at my house with all the things, there's so much intrusion upon that creative process of crafting and creating. Um, 
Yeah. Dance therapy writing retreat. <laughs> yeah. I would love to do that. I was actually going to do that before my surgery. I was working on that before my surgery. And part of the thing that I haven't been able to do is because I have a contract to write a book. Um, and I had to let them know again, like I couldn't sit. I mean, I, it was too painful to sit. Sitting was the worst. You know, I was lying on my side or walking or had to sit and like, you know, with all kinds of support and stuff. And I could write for a bit. Plus not to mention the painkillers they give you when you've had major surgery. <laughs> I'd be writing be like, what was I doing? <laughs> yeah. I am still feel like I'm getting my mind back a bit, my brain and all that. Mm -hmm. that, yeah I mean I had to be I was on medication for quite a while so the extent of the surgery and the impact on the nerves and when they talk they're loud mm -hmm. nerve language is often pain <laughs> mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. yes yeah pain is pain is a loud language like there's different types of of pain and how do we listen beneath it sometimes mm -hmm. how do we treat it or cover it sometimes when do we distract it's all that yeah because i've had you know pain from the car accidents and i often use breath to work with pain and would you know use breath to try to because breath I, will shift it i mean sometimes it can make it a little worse but it find that it could sometimes soften it or melt it. I often, I also think about yielding a lot. I would try to find the place closest to the pain that was yielded and sort of go into that and then invite that into the pain. Um, Post-surgery, this nerve pain was like nothing I've ever had before. So there were times where it was just, I'd scream. It was really hard to, I had to just let it express itself. But I'm somebody, I mean, I, I have to be really in pain to even take an Advil. I don't like to take anything. But it is, it's very interesting. The one thing that I that I appreciate and and um I've learned not to be afraid of pain. And I was already on that journey before the surgery, but I think that's one thing. And I'm there is pain that that's terrifying. I believe there's pain that's life-threatening. And I think a lot of pain, it's helpful not to be afraid of it. I think that's one of the in terms of, you know, working with fear, which we talked about, like it's been one of the lessons, the transmissions I'm getting from pain is how to not go into fear. Just let the pain be pain and do what I need to do. Yell, swear. <laughs> mm -hmm. Breathe. Mm. It's funny because now most of the pain is in my sits bones. So I'm always like, putting my hands on my ass and kind of going loosen up loosen up like shake it out shake it out you know <laughs> we don't need a tight ass today like that's actually what I do I do in public places because they'll just grab and it hurts it's not nowhere near what I had right after surgery and I'm just like oh, come on just <laughs> and I shake my butt I just can't worry about what it looks like in public because I don't want to be in pain so that's yeah my practice. yeah well so often we worry about what it looks like. Yeah. And so we interfere with the wisdom of the, the cycle yeah. of resolution, whether it's emotional pain or yeah. physical pain. Yeah. 
Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'm going to start calling it my butt buggy. <laughs> Just invite other people into it. Just yeah. be like, this feels, feels good whether or not you've had surgery. <laughs> That's a great way to bring our work into the world. Just invite people. I did that once in a in a laundromat. I was at like fourth or fifth in line and it was the end of a day and LM, LMFAO was playing um that song. That dance song. Um wiggle 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 wiggle. Wiggle wiggle and and I'm moving and you can see people looking and I finally said, Am I really the only person here who feels like dancing? And the guy <laughs> And he goes, well, just start and see what happens. So I started dancing and the whole line ended up dancing. Like, it was just great. He was like, well, just do it then. And then everybody's like, yeah, yeah. It was like a mini flash mob, I guess. I love that in that example, when you voice, oh, I really want to do this. There's someone who's like, go ahead. Yeah. <laughs> and how wonderful just to have someone open to it. And then it yeah. sparked. Yeah. Yeah, because yeah. I'm sure at least one person was thinking about dancing. It was a big dance song. It's like, come on, somebody else here is dancing in their mind. What does it take to get to the point where you hear rhythms like that and keep your body immobilized? Conditioning, right? Social conditioning. I mean, I think about that all the time. I think that's why I love Continuum so much. When I teach continuum, my students have often heard me say, we go to the store. You know, I always think about picking out a strawberry or an avocado. And it's like, what if you were actually to bring this work and be like, oh, you know, sound into the avocado. Why don't we do that? Conditioning, right? I guess we're supposed to behave. I don't like the word behavior. I've never liked that word. Behave <laughs> in certain ways, right? It's conditioning. That could get into a whole conversation about supremacy, white supremacy, all of that. What took the wild out of us? That's the question. What took the wild out of us? That's I'm coming full circle, I think, to what we started with. What, where did it go? Why can't we actually take some avocados and hold them on our belly and move with them and then decide which one we want? You know, why not? Or sing to them, sing the strawberries to us, sing the limes to us. Mm. yeah because we have a pear tree here it didn't do so well this year because we didn't have enough rain but i've had to learn my husband's really good at this there's just a way that i touch them and they'd fall when they're ready i remember me as a little kid at christmas time can i go pick it just go touch it and how the fruit will fall when it's ready and it smells differently when it's ready yep yep that's one of the things I'm, I'm a big sniffer Me of, too. The, of, the, of the produce. <laughs> I think that there's a wisdom to the millennia of evolution where the sense of smell had a lot to do with evaluating what to eat. Yeah. And health. I mean, one of my old teachers way back when I went to massage school, taught diagnosis through smell and i still i still smell things i still and i often it's kind of crazy but very accurate say to somebody i think you have 
some going on in your chest. I've smelled fear in people. Um, there's definitely, yeah. But we learned how to do that. That's an old way of working with people. Smell is the olfactory nerve, right? I think it's, if not the, one of the oldest in the body. It goes right to the amygdala. People make fun of aromatherapy, but I have so many beautiful scents in my office. And I always ask my clients to bring their favorite perfume or scent, you know, and I'll, I'll put a little in a bottle and it's just, it's really helpful when we're processing some of the harder stuff and people are encountering fear. It's like, just be with this scent. I created a scent once with, um, yeah, with, with some friends um, and I, I got to smell all of these different oils, essential oils, and then we put together what called us. Mm -hmm. And then it was my scent that I'd crafted. Wow. And it felt so nourishing and affirming of my pleasure and my preferences. Mm-hmm. You know, and so even to have that be part of a clinical space yeah. where there's an invitation to center pr- your preference and your pleasure, even if we're going into the difficult. When you said center, we, I, heard, so I saw S-C-E-N-T, like center, but also center. Was that an intentional play on words? I know it wasn't, but I love that. <laughs> said it. You said center, and I'm like center was sent. Yes. What took the wild out of us, and and in connection to that is like what took the joy and the p- pleasure, the permission to truly access what I like or what feels. It, 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 not everybody likes the same scent. Isn't right. that a wonderful right. thing? It's amazing. You know, like my sister loved patchouli and I was like, oh, <laughs> so, not for me. How, how amazing to see the uniqueness and be empowered in that. Yep. Yep. I know. I'm an agarwood person and a lot of people don't like agarwood. It's really strong, but I love that. Agarwood. I don't know if I know that. Really strong scent. Yeah. Earthy, very earthy. I like the earthy, like woodland. Yeah. And pine trees. I love pine. Like I love Christmas candles that smell like Christmas trees Mm because I just love that smell. Mm -hmm. I actually went on a hike yesterday with my children and it was very wet and rainy and um there were mushrooms everywhere cool they have such an earthy scent mm-hmm. and they're like little little hiding <laughs> clandestine like you said clandestine they are so sneaky and they're like just watching you as you walk past and sometimes you spot them and sometimes they spot you and you missed them yep yeah <laughs> They were, they're everywhere because it's been so wet. So it's all fruited. And uh, yeah, it's that wet, earthy smell. Um, I love it. (laughs) 
I was hiking in Tasmania once with a friend and we met a man who was probably in his seventies or eighties. And he was using, he was tracking mushrooms and fungus and moss and all that. And he'd never been to the mainland of Australia. It was so interesting. I just, I don't remember the whole conversation, but we were talking a bit and he'd never left Tasmania, but he said, I know every single moss lichen mushroom on this Island. Like he'd spent his whole life, his whole life tracking through sight and smell and documenting. He said, there is a whole world here. And he said, by the time I die, I will not have discovered most of it. He was joking. People said, you should travel. He's like, I travel every day because I meet something entirely new. It was beautiful. Beautiful. Wow. Yeah. I remember he said people sometimes just need to pay more attention to where they are (laughs) and see what's there. It was amazing. Mm -hmm. Weathered old, you know, he's just a classic, like looked like a weathered fisherman type, you know, like really beautiful, beautiful spirit. Yeah. That's such a good invitation. Yeah. Yeah. You've asked questions today, like what, what are the ways you violence yourself? Mm -hmm. I really like how that's phrased because it can be violence, cause violence yourself, or it can be violence within yourself. And you've asked, um, what took the wild out of us? Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, what this man asked of, what would it look like if you paid attention to where you are? Yeah. So beautiful. I love those three questions. What an invitation. Mm. Yeah, to write, to move, to breathe into them. Mm. Mm-hmm. Ask them over and over again. Mm. Reminds and- me of Rumi living into the questions I read. Another thing that you said that I wrote down, because I like to write down the things that hit me, is learning to walk again. Mm. Yeah. And it's so simple and so big. I don't think I've grasped grasped the bigness yet when I sit with how worried the neurosurgeon was the morning after my surgery that I, you know, because I remember when I moved my foot, my knee, he just said, you just made my day. I didn't think you were going to be able to do that. I think someday I'll be able to look back and, and write about this. I started something and it was too early to write about it. The slowing down and the learning to walk again. Mm-hmm. Being immobilized for a while. Um, yeah. A lot of my identity is in being able to move. Yeah. Absolutely. Big part of my life is, you know, running, like being, being somebody who's just really good at running airports and making the flights, you know, I have to have a wheelchair in an airport now. I can walk, but airports are not the place to test. You know, people are always just pushing you over and bags everywhere. And yeah, it's definitely part of my identity, the ability to move freely and bigly and smallly. Maybe that's the timing, you know, like integrating this into my identity too, because it's part of it. Um, the stillness that the forced, forced stillness, really forced 
I mean, it used to take me a half hour, 45 minutes to get into bed right after the surgery. And I would get in just enough so that often we'd have to put like a big, a box with something soft on it for my knees to be on because it was so painful to move. I had to do that. I always call it the sausage roll. <laughs> roll, you know, and then you get on your side and I was so hard to slide. So being placed in, in the right place, I slept for probably a month or two on the edge of the bed, you know, just that's as far as I could go. The pain wasn't worth it to get more in the middle. So I'd slept okay, but it was, I slept really still. Mm -hmm. I had to. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I remember the, like moving in my sleep and being awakened by, by pain. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's hard. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And to have someone help you find that right spot. Yeah. I know my poor husband, because I usually stay up later. He'd be like, no, you have to come to bed now because it's going to take me 45 minutes to get you in the right place, you know, to help me get there. Yeah. Yeah. So that's so loving. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, it's the the trajectory for all of us, right? Yeah. Some of us are just at different stages to get to eventually to the point where hopefully we'll still move, <laughs> you know, until our dying days and enjoy movement. But there's just a natural progression. And I think it's pretty revolutionary to inhabit that it's kind of like a woman allowing herself to age <laughs> yeah. yeah it's revolutionary in the context of culture where beauty norms and technological change restrict how people are supposed to look yeah it's revolutionary to age it's revolutionary to say, as I age, I'm going to be true to the way that my body changes. I, I always think of it as the spirit getting bigger. Um, I had a dog that, you know, I call him the love of my life. And I mean, he was actually called a bodhisattva by, by some folks in our Buddhist community. He was just this amazing dog. He was just, just at the beginning moments of getting sick. And I remember my friend saying, you know, there's going to come a time where his spirit's going to get too big for his body and then you're going to have to let him go. And I looked at him and he said, well, that's what aging is. If we allow it to happen. He's this brilliant psychiatrist who lives in Lebanon. He just said, that's what aging is. We just have to allow it to happen. Wow. Yeah. Rabia. Yeah. Rabia is his name. I love that. Yeah. It's not just about the physical. In fact, it's not about the physical. It's about the spirit. Mm -hmm. As long as it's, a, I guess, a warm and cozy and loving environment, doesn't matter if there's some wrinkles or sags or droops or whatever it is. It's, you know, the spirit just needs a place. Mm -hmm. mm -hmm. Maybe that's why that, I just thought that maybe that's why bellies get bigger and stuff. Maybe it's spirit poking out to saying, hey, give me some more space. That's a good reframe. <laughs> amuses me yeah it's great 
So are you planning another of these retreats? I am going to do three next year. Um, I'm going to be over there for a while. Um, I'm doing one from August 1st to 8th with a um, friend called Writing the Waves, which is going to be writing and movement in the whales. Um, and then I'm hopefully doing one in the middle. That's actually a funded one. I got a grant, um, before the pandemic and haven't been able to do it to bring, you know, a community over. And what I'm hoping to do, I have a meeting Thursday night is to bring, um, indigenous women from here. Um, you know, this would be one where they, it'd be, they'd be paid for. So I have 50% of what I need to do that. And then I'm doing dancing the wild home at the end of August the one that I do every year. So I'm going to be over there for a while. I'm really excited. I just because it is becoming much more about um, the immensity of climate crisis and our, our responsibility to respect the ocean and to take care of it. Yeah. I'd love to get to a point where I spend the whole summer there and just do this. It sounds so amazing. Yeah. Yeah. It is, because even if you don't get in the water, the whales at night, a lot of times they tail, it's called tail slapping and they do it and they go back and forth. There was one night this summer that was just like, no one could sleep. You know, it was like a big drum circle in the ocean. It was just like, boom, boom, they play. And I heard a whale roar for the first time. I'd never heard them roar, but just roared. I thought, I was like, there, there's no lions on this island, but it was just a massive roar that just came out of the ocean. Yeah, they're they're all around because it's the breeding and birthing time. So, oh, wow. Yeah, you should come. <laughs> I would love to. Yes, please. Yes, please. The climate crisis is so close to my heart as well, and sometimes it's hard to wrap my head around. But I do think part of it is establishing that intimacy. Yeah. It's like we care for that that we love. Yeah. And that we're connected to. And it's the entrapment in virtual realities that many of us are part of or cement realities that yeah. keep us keep us from that place of reciprocity and belonging and responsibility. And I think it's an addiction to convenience. You know, I think of Al Gore's movie, An Inconvenient Truth. It was such a great word. People are so addicted to convenience. We're so used to it. Just, um, it's really, I think, eroded the, the nature of participation and responsibility um, that we that we have. I think it's really critical right now. I mean, I'm honestly not at all sure we're going to pull out of this. A lot of people take offense at this. I actually just keep hoping that humans go before we take all the wildlife down with us. I can't tolerate the end of polar bears and giraffes because they've lost land to, you know, agriculture and development. And that's what I can't bear. That's the beauty of this world. I mean, when I was a kid, I found lady slippers and lily of the valley and leopard frogs and tree frogs and they were tan and green and and those woods are all gone they're all houses now 
anytime I see development, I'm like, what are we thinking? I was on a flight recently with a woman and somehow we were talking about that. She goes, oh, there's plenty of space. I go, no, there's not. It's, it's finite. This planet is finite. I hope we go down first because we did it. I mean, if, if we can't, if we can't correct it. Yeah. I, I, I listened to, you know, are you familiar with wisdom keepers? I was listening to one recently and it was actually, I think a Hawaiian elder. And he said something like the earth mother will take care of herself. Yeah. She will take care of herself. It's just whether we come in line with that or not. Yeah. You're right. It is those animals that have, that will suffer alongside us. Right. And yeah convenience my daughter especially uh is very wise and very rigid and refuses single-use plastic she's That's like awesome. it is it's awesome it's she's like mom do not buy the snacks that are single use plastic. Don't do it. Yeah, you go daughter. I love that. I love her. See, now yeah. I have hope. Like that gives me hope because I don't have kids. So I'm not as like, if that can happen, if there's that much wisdom. She's always like calling me to it too. You know, so now I'm like much more conscious. I can't buy, I can't buy the juice box. I'll get yelled at. <laughs> But I'm grateful to her. I need that because convenience can be so compelling. She sometimes, she sometimes swims with me, but it's too cold for her. <laughs> it's too cold for her here. <laughs> I would love to swim with you. I would. I love getting in cold water. Oh, anytime. I would love that so much, Amber. If you want to come to the Pacific Northwest, please. Yeah, the water's cold enough. It'll take your breath away. Yeah, I love that though. I mean, I might not love it all the time, but I, I love it. Yeah. Yeah. It's like I've taken a few people swimming and um the energy that happens right after the cold plunge, the sounding, you know, like you don't have to coach it. <laughs> so loud and people's tuning into their breath and there's so much energy that arises naturally from that experience of like getting in the water and being cold and then you get out and there's just your body has arisen energetically yeah yeah all right yeah. let's plan it thank you so much amber thank you Thank you to Amber Elizabeth Gray for her storytelling of her journey of recovery from surgery, of her encounter with 10-ton whales for the transmission that is possible through a conversation. Thank you to Josie Rockwell for the opening credits and Erin Kate Dunnick for the closing credits. Thank you to my patrons and those 
who listen and follow this podcast.